Happy Father's Day. And I'm happy to start the summer sermon series on Father's Day. In Forest, if you're new, I want you to know that we have a three regular sermon series in a year. At the beginning of the year, we study the gospel and try to deepen our understanding of Christ. In the middle of the year, we study Old Testament stories and remember the root of our faith. In the fall, we come back to the New Testament and study one of the letters and uh, see how radically the early Christians lived out for God. 2021 summer study is a continuation of the last year's series on David. Last summer, we studied the first series of David, King in the Wilderness. There we saw how David not just escaped the threat and the temptations of being a fugitive and political exile, but also experienced God's sustaining grace and also he exercised his faith in God. Starting today, we will study the second part of David's life in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel basically records, uh, tells us the triumphs and the tragedy of uh, David. And uh, we will look at the first 10 chapters of 2 Samuel and learn from the learn about inspiring triumphs of David. Before we start, let me ask you a very fundamental question. Why do we study David? You know, David is a crucial figure in the Bible that connects us to Christ. In the Bible, the name David appears more than anybody else's name. Only less than Jesus. Jesus' name appeared 1,310 times, whereas David's name appears 974 times. And the first sentence of the New Testament begins this way. Jesus, son of David. Jesus Christ, son of David. So David ultimately joins, I mean points, points us to Christ. And before God revealed his heart, which is Christ to us, guess what? God showed us man after his heart, which is David. So through David's story, I want us to know God's heart deeper. And now, the first lesson about the David's triumphs comes from his grief and lamenting. Sorrow and grief reveals much about a person. What a person grieves shows that what he or she really loves and even what kind of glory the person seeks. So, on this Father's Day, let me ask you this question. Do you know your father's uh, grief? Do you know your father's, you know, uh, uh, pain? Do you know what pains your father? Many people who know the joy and pleasures of their fathers often are ignorant about the pain and griefs of their fathers. So if you're not sure about your father's pain, ask them today. My father's grief was that he wasn't able to go to college. He has to uh, take care of a family. So instead, he had to go to teacher's college, the two-year program. And it always 
been a, a regret or wish in his life, and uh, I am beneficiary of my father's sort of uh, a grief for lack of education. So my, my father, he made up his mind. When it comes to education, I'm going to support my children as long as they want to be educated. And you know, that's why I even studied at the age of 40. You know, how many people be a full-time student at the age of 40? I was able to do that because of my father's commitment to support me. Uh, there is a great German uh, theologian and martyr, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote many insightful and uh, inspiring letters while he was waiting for his execution in the prison, uh, German prison, Tegel, Tegel prison. And this is uh, what he said. There's uh, one thing he wrote is, do you have the quote? Okay, here. The poet Sifter once said, pain is a holy angel who shows treasures to people which would otherwise remain forever hidden. Through him, that means pain, people have become greater than through all the joys of the world. It must be so. And I'll, I tell myself this in my present situation over and over again. The pain of a suffering and of a longing, which can often be felt even physically, must be there. And we cannot and need not talk it away, but it needs to be overcome every time. And thus, there is an even holier angel than the one of a pain that is one of the joy in God. Bonhoeffer finds pain to be a pathway to a deeper joy. Without pain, our joy is a shallow. Our joy is a shallow. And we, you know, without confronting pain, we miss the greater joy, which is a divine joy for us. And uh, do you notice that uh, uh, Book of uh, Psalms takes uh, confronting pain seriously? And we call that lament. Confronting pain in the presence of God is called lament. And guess how many psalms are lament? 70% of psalms are the psalms of a lament. And Bible definitely tells us it is wise to know and remember the pain. And that's why Ecclesiastes 7.2 says, it is better to go to a house of a mourning than go to the house of a feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone, and living should take this to heart. You know, a few years ago, you guys remember that I talked about the app, you know, smartphone app called the WeCroc? Anyone? It's based on a Bhutanese, you know, saying that in order to be happy, everybody should contemplate about death five times a day. So the WeCroc, you know, app, they send, a, when you sign up, they send a, a, a reminder different, you know, way, different sayings that uh, you are mortal. <laughs> and uh, they are absolutely right. I try, you know, I use their, uh, their, their app for a while and, uh, you know, it really, you know, in midst of a fight, you remember, you know, 
that one day you will be gone or that person will be gone and you don't have much time to fight. So the first thing we see about David in 2 Samuel is his grief and mourning. And today I want to share with you the three aspects of David's lament because they are so inspiring and instructive to us. So let's look at the context of the story first. Let's look at the Second Samuel chapter 1, verse 1 to 12 first. After the death of Saul, David returned from striking down the Amalekite and stayed in the Ziglach two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground and to pay him honor. Where have you come from? David asked him. He answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened? David asked. Tell me. The man fled from the battle, he replied. Many of them fell and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, How do you know Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and their drivers in hot pursuit. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me, and I said, What can I do? He asked me, Who are you? I'm Alakite, I answered. Then he said to me, Stand here by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of a death, and I'm still alive. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head, and the band on his arm had brought them before uh, here to my Lord. Then David and the, all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan, and for the army of the Lord, and for the nation of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword." The messenger who delivered the, uh, the uh, uh, news of the death of Saul and Jonathan was an Amalekite young man. And this was more than coincident. It's almost more than even irony. It's a very you know, intentional purpose. Today, David came back after defeating Amalekite. And the Amalekite, they are portrayed throughout the early story of Israel as the ultimate enemy of God's people. Why? First of all, when you look at the Deuteronomy 25, 17, and 18, they were very nasty and sneaky to Israelite when Israelite was traveling from Egypt to the Promised Land. So Deuteronomy 25, 17 said, Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, when you are weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind, and they had no fear of God. Amalekites, they were very evil people, unprovoked. They attacked the innocent traveling group, and who did they attack? Like a hyena. You know, the hyena, the wild dogs of you know, Africa. They attacked those lagging behind, women and children. So if you look at the other passage like Exodus chapter 17, God actually pronounced the uh, permanent 
judgment on Amalekite that from generation to generation, Israelite, you should wage the war against Amalekite, these evil people. In the first Samuel, God actually commanded Saul to bring a God's judgment to Amalekite. And God gave him a victory. And what did Saul do? Instead of destroying everything as a judgment of God, Saul selfishly spared all the good animals and good war spoils. So he perverted the holy war of God into personal financial gain. And that's why Saul was rejected. And David was anointed for the next king. But look today's story. Guess who is this? literally stripping Saul's crown and the armband. It was an Amalekite young man. The people that he failed to disobey to God. If you, this is Amalekite, young Amalekite, was a, in a sense, is a vintage Amalekite. That is, the, he's an opportunist, like his ancestors. So, you know, uh, look at, if you look at the map, do we have a map? Yes. Can you see? It's kind of, okay, I'm sorry. In the farther north, there is a Mount Gilboa in the uh, Valley of Jezreel. And by the way, Valley of Jezreel is a famous battleground in ancient world. And the nearby Mount Gilboa, there is a famous hill called the Hill of Megiddo, and later in the Book of Revelation called the Armageddon. Okay. And this is where battle was, a, you know, a, a battle between Israelites and Philistines uh, was waged. And they lost. Israelites lost. And uh, this Amalekite uh, uh, man, he traveled more than 60 miles all the way from Mount Gilboa to all the way south of Israel called the area called the Ziglach, where David's headquarters in the wilderness was located. In the middle of it, there's a city called Gibeah. Gibeah is a hometown of Saul and the capital of the kingdom of Israel at the time. He could bring the king's crown and all the remaining to the hometown of Saul, and they would probably be grateful and handsomely paid him. But why did he bring all the way down to where David was? Because he want to make a bigger gain. He want to maximize a profit. And here, he was presenting himself like an innocent bystander in the battlefield that I happened to be there. That's not true. How in the world did you happen to be in the battlefield? He went there like a vulture, like a scavenger. He was waiting until battle was over, and then he was collecting all the you know, treasures or whatever, you know, precious uh, uh, belongings of the soldiers and generals. And today, he thought he'd make more money by giving a crown and royal band to David than Saul's family. Why? Everybody in the area knew how much Saul hated David and tried to kill David. And today, this young Amalekite man will find out that his calculation did not add up because this is a first insight about the David's lament. David's lament was a counter-cultural. The man after God had a counter-intuitive grief. 
So let's find out about David's response in verse 13. David said to the young man who brought him the report, Where are you from? I am son of a foreigner, an Amalekite, he answered. David asked him, Why won't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of his men and said, Go and strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David said to the man, and said to him, Your blood be on your head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. Here, you know, one interesting thing is that why did David ask the uh, Amalekite young man, that, Where are you from? He already heard that this young man was an Amalekite. You know, David wanted to make sure that whether he knows a full, he's a full story with a soul. You know, when this young man uh, uh, told David that uh, I'm a son of a foreigner, an Amalekite, the word, the Hebrew word for foreigner is uh, different from Gentile, which is a boy, but it's actually girl, which means resident alien. So other English translation have a different word, like a sojourner. So he's an Amalekite living in the midst of Israelite. So he knows the story between David and Saul because he was living with the Israelite and he know that how many times David spared the Saul's life. But today, guess what? This Amalekite messenger he completely missed David's true fear and joy, and he misjudged David's faith and character. And he eventually became the victim of his own lie. You know, by the way, if you look at the first Samuel chapter 31, Saul committed to suicide. This Amalekite young man didn't kill Saul. Saul was uh, pursued by Philistine archers and, uh, you know, had a morally, I mean, fatally wounded, and uh, so he killed himself. This young man, he kind of made up, he embellished the story, trying to tell David that, uh, oh, Saul is absolutely dead. I did it, you know, it's for sure. Even though it's a mercy killing, it's clearly it's done. You can be sure. And the reason he embellished everything is because he thought, David will be happy and gratified. He totally misjudged David's character. So before I go to the further into this point, I want to ask this. One important you know, lesson from this Amalekite messenger is this. How about us? Do we approach God with a calculation based on our sensibility or our own worldly values. If we don't know God's characters clearly, you know what? Our worship and devotion can backfire on us, just like this, this young man's story. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 7 that there are not everyone who, says, who tells me, Lord and Lord, will enter into the kingdom of God, but only one who does the will of my Father in heaven will go? On that day, many, of, many, many will say to me, the Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, in your name perform many miracles? Then I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. You know, more than performing any spectacular ministries 
or even performing miracles, the most important thing in Christian life is knowing heart of God. Knowing heart of God and knowing His true character and knowing His will is the most fundamental. Now, David's reaction to Saul's death was a countercultural because most people will celebrate. They cheer because their persecutor is dead. And imagine, first, for the first time in a long time, David could sleep at night without worrying about tomorrow. David was safe at last. But today, David was not rejoicing for his freedom. Rather, his heart was broken. Why? To David, Saul was God's anointed more than anything else. You know, throughout the first Samuel, David called repeatedly Saul as the Lord's anointed. Lord's anointed. That means before Saul was my enemy, or Saul was unfair to me, before Saul has a bad heart, I mean very evil intention toward me, Saul was a God's instrument. He belongs to God. Here is a David. This is why David's grieving was a countercultural. Because David saw Saul not with his own self perspective, own self interest, but in the lens of God. Before David, I mean, Saul was anything or anybody to David, Saul was important, significant to God. So when you look at the other people in your life, especially those who are creating pain in your life, how do you perceive them? I hope before we assess other people in terms of my relationship with that person, we need to assess that person in their relationship with God. Before they are my friend or my enemy, whatever to me, they are precious child of God. They are made in God's image. They are redeemed by the blood of Christ. And the Holy Spirit is still working in them. So because I am disappointed, I am hurt by that person, that does mean that I cheer when they fall. Only time we cheer is when they repent and follow Christ. Amen? So on this Father's Day, I want to be made clear. Parents, all children, they are not ours. They belong to God first. Parents, I mean children, your, your fathers, they are not your fathers. They are God's children too. So be good to them. Sorry, that's a side point. All right. This, uh, uh, so now, the counterintuitive grief, it reveals that David's sorrow is a holy grief. Holy grief. It comes from God. Because of God, David could have this uh, countercultural you know, a, a lament. Now, let's see what David do. Look at the verse 17. David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan, and he ordered the people of Judah, his own tribe, be taught this lament of a bow. It is written in the book of Joshua. A gazelle lies slain on your height, Israel. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Goth. 
the main city of a Philistine, proclaiming not in the street of Ashkelon, lest, uh, lest the daughters of a Philistine be glad, lest the daughters of uncircumcised rejoice. Mountains of Gilboa, may you have a neither dew nor rain. May no showers fall on your terraced field. For there the shield of a mighty was despised, the shield of a soul no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and admired. In death they were not parted. They were swifter than an eagles. They were stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel, we foresaw who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorn your garment with the ornament of a gold. David not just mourned for Saul and Jonathan's death, guess what? He also made a song for them. He made a song for them. And he taught Israelites to learn the song and to sing the song in their honor. And this is a second beauty of David's lament. That is a lament for common good, common good. You know, David could easily use the failure of Saul as a political opportunity to promote himself. Look at the, you know, your, your, the, the king who wasted our precious you know, army against the Philistines. I had, as you know, I beat the Philistines. I couldn't you know, let the victory. David could easily take this as a political propaganda. Instead, what did he do? David really honored them for the sake of a common good. You know, David has something bigger than self-interest. And this is a characteristic of all great leaders. All the great leaders in history, in many nations, in every nation, they always bring people for the common good. Not their, you know, partisan, particular, you know, self-interest. You know, the songs that we know that people write for uh, 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 that, you know, their beloved, that people are usually, you know, us, you know, two songs that came to my mind is that, uh, what is that, the, uh, Eric Clifton's, you know, when he lost his uh, son, the young, uh, who fell from the, you know, window and then died, he, he wrote a song called the, uh, what is that, Tears in Heaven, you know, and also, when Princess Diana died, you know, tragically, Elton John sang the fame, you know, sang a performer song, "The Candle in the Wind." So people make a, you know, uh, this uh, song of a memory for beloved child or wonderful humanitarian. David today made a song for his former enemy. Who made his life miserable? And why? Because even though he was evil to him, but to God still used him, used him as a king of Israel. So he was telling his own tribe and the rest of Israel like that, don't forget what he has done for us. It's incredible, incredible. Seeking common good of the country. I want to go directly to application on the second point. You know, every Sunday in our bulletin, our house church too, 
We ask people to pray for our country and our political leaders. Because if you really knew a little bit about our country's history, you should know that we are in a very critical part of history. I mean, we are in crisis. We are no longer living a United States of America. We are living a divided states of America. And yeah, I'll, I'll say this. This is a you know I don't have any you know I don't have any hatred or any you know uh, uh, bad 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 wish against China. But CCP is a different story. Chinese Communist Party is an enemy of humanity. I speak from my own experience since from South America. Wherever CCP, their influence goes, dictatorship rises, and nothing but a selfish people thrive. And the CCP is in the direct collision with the United States of America and all the free world, and we don't have much time. We have, you know, economists and people say next five, 10 years, CCP can really, their the economic power can dominate us. And then look at us, we are far more divided than ever before. So we need to pray for both uh, Democratic, I mean Democrats and the Republican politicians to put the common good of country above the partisan politics. And we really need to be united together. And sometimes I'm so disheartened when Christians are also following the partisan politics. Let me tell you, Christians, we cannot be Republican nor Democrat. We are Christian, even in politics. Our politics is a pursuit of a justice and mercy and peace. Amen? You know, the other day I was, uh, you know, I was so disheartened and, uh, I, you know, I read the, uh, you know, what is the, uh, the Gettysburg's, you know, address. One of the most powerful and moving speeches in our country's history. You know, 160 years ago, 1863, in Gettysburg, President Abraham Lincoln wrote this very short, less than two-minute speech that really, really gave us inspiration. In there, you know, actually Gettysburg, those of you who know the you know, American history, it was not a really victory. Nobody won. Rather, it's a miserable you know, battle where 51,000 North and South soldiers died. This was a brutal, brutal you know, a, a battle during the Civil War. But President Lincoln, he said this, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation, conceiving the liberty, dedicated to a proposition that all men are created equal. And he said, on this hollow ground, today we are dedicating not to those dead soldiers, but the living to unfinished work of liberty. And as long as we remember this dead, their blood are not in vain, shed in the vein. And then that's where he said, the government of the people, by the people, for the people will never perish on the earth. And inspire us. You know, that's a great president, recognizing our failure and rally us to common, common, and common good of our country. We don't find this kind of political leaders today in our country. That is really concerning, and we need to pray. And those are Christian politicians in Congress. We need to pray 
that they will rise up to really do things with a conscience and courage. David taught Israelite, mourn for their failed king. Even though he's failed king, but he gave his life for the country. He said, let's honor them. That's what David was saying. Now, finally, the third point is that David remembers the covenantal love of Jonathan. So last, you know, part of this beautiful uh, song, uh, song, song of eulogy is this, verse 25. How mighty ever fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain in your height. And I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful. More wonderful than that of a woman. How mighty ever fallen. The weapons of the war have perished. When David describes his mourning for Jonathan, David compared Jonathan's love for him to that of a woman. And uh, some people misunderstand there's some kind of sexual thing going on between David and Jonathan, some kind of homosexual relationship. And let me tell you, that's not the, what David is saying here. In the uh, past, men or people of the same gender, they had a physical intimacy and that was, a, that, that was you know, has nothing to do with a sexual thing. You know, even me, up until, you know, high school, I mean, junior high school, I held my friends, you know, my boys, I mean, male friends' hands. In Latin American culture, in close family, close circle of uh, friends, guys even kissed to the cheeks to each other. Why did David compare Jonathan's love to that, that of a woman for him? David knew woman's love more than anybody. You know, David's so one weakness is a woman, you know, love of a woman. Perhaps he's the youngest of eight and he was neglected by his own family. So maybe he craved for the, you know, love, affection from other people more than, you know, whatever other, you know, that the older children, older, older sons might do. But thing is this, David not only loved a lot of women, a lot of women loved David too, you know. Why? According to the Bible, he was handsome. He was a, a shepherd, and that means he's well-built, and he was a warrior. On top of that, he was a singer. You know, someone is good-looking, sings well, and faith is good. No wonder a lot of women after David, you know. And so David knows how much women loved him. But you know what today David is saying? Jonathan, your love for me was purer than any woman's love for me. Nobody loved me more than you did. No love is better than your love for me. This is what David was saying. And I have to say this. For the loss of a, such a faithful covenantal friend is a never temporary. It brings you to unending grief. Yes, that's my last point. When you really grieve somebody that you love, that grief has no ending. It's sad and hard, but that's a fact. When somebody you love dearly, or someone that you know loved you dearly, 
and they are gone, there is a vacuum that you can, that nothing in this world can fill up. There is an a, a, a American philosopher, Christian philosopher and theologian named uh, Nicholas uh, Waltersdorf. Do you have a picture of him? Okay. Uh, he was a former you know, professor at the Yale. And uh, Nicholas Waltersdorf, when he was 51 years old, one day he received a phone call. His four children and his oldest son, Eric, was a 25 years old at the time, and he was a mountaineer. He was a, he was doing a mountaineering. Mount, he was climbing a mountain in Alps, and they died. And he received a phone call. And he said that phone call changed him forever. In the memory of his son Eric, uh, Nicholas Walter Stropper wrote a, a very short book called The Lament for Son. There are three books that I actually recommend people go through uh, you know, problem of uh, grief and suffering and pain. Uh, first book is A Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis. Very analytical, very apologetic, but you know. And second book is A Grief Observed, again written by C.S. Lewis. Nothing analytical, everything is emotional and uh, very, uh, uh, very honest. It's so shocking. It's, it seems like he's a shouting at God kind of you know, book but uh, it helps you know, uh, many people. And third book is A Lament for Son. In The Lament for Son, this is a quote that I want to share with you. He said, God is not only God of the sufferers, but the God who suffers. It is said of God that no one can behold his face and live. I always thought this meant that no one could see his splendor and, and live. You know, people say God is a holy, you see this perfect holiness, the unholy sinners die. He has a new interpretation. A friend said perhaps it meant that no one could see his sorrow and live. Or perhaps his sorrow is his splendor. Instead of explaining our suffering, God shares our suffering with us. Nicholas Walter Stoff, he said, our God is a God who shares suffering with us. He doesn't explain. He just embodies the suffering for us. And, they, they, and they, in the preface, he tells us the story about his friend that, uh, who bought, he told him that uh, he bought the, uh, a book, four books and gave each one of his children. So Nico, you know, Walter Stoff said, Thank you for buying my books, but you don't, why don't you just buy one book and then share the you know, book? And then his friend said, Nicholas, your lament for your son is not just a lament. It's a love song. It's a love song. And I want my children to know the love song. When you love somebody and that somebody is gone, the lament is actually is a love song you will sing you will sing until you see them in presence of God. Now let me conclude our message today. David's lament ultimately points, points out for us the Christ's lament for us. Later in the Matthew chapter 23, uh, 37 said this. When Jesus was in Jerusalem during the last week or Passion Week, 
This is what Jesus said. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under the, her wings, and you are not willing. Jesus, in his last week in Jerusalem, he lamented for Jerusalem, people of Jerusalem who are about to crucify him. He knew they're going to kill him. But instead of his own death, guess what? Jesus lamented and mourned for their rejection and their, you know, their ultimate you know, judgment, of judgment before God. Our Lord lamented for the sinners who reject him and kill him. David lamented for horrible king. And why is it inspiring? Because this is a shadow of the perfect king, son of God, who lament for every sinner in this world to come to know God's heart. Last quote of a Nicholas Walter Straub, that, uh, that one quote is a one sentence that I, I hope that really helped me. And uh, this is my one of the favorite theological statements. And I hope you, you, know, uh, you find the same. He also says this in the book, Lament for Son. Tears of God are the meaning of a story, history. Tears of God are the meaning of history. Tears of God are the meaning of his story. Think about that. Tears of God are the meaning of his story. To Christian, tears of God are the meaning of his story. What God shed tears? Do you know any God who shed tears, especially for sinners, those who are killing him, rejecting him? We are the followers of God who not only incarnate in this world, but gave his life for the sinners and those who reject. We are the God who, you know, we, be, we believe the God who shed his tears. And that's the meaning of his story that we believe and that we try to build in this world. Let's pray together.